0: This is a crowd podcast.
1: I want to play something for you. Something that when I recorded it, shook me to my core.
2: There's no danger. There's no racking. There's nobody with a weapon. There's no military-aged male.
0: Well, then...
2: Who opens fire, and how the fuck does anybody think it's okay to open fire in that room?
0: In that scenario, it's not, yeah. In that scenario, it's not okay.
1: By the time I had this conversation with Frank, I'd been filming him for years. We discussed his case, and specifically, what happened in House 2 at least a dozen times, maybe more. In fact, the very day I recorded this interview, Frank had been arraigned, formally charged with murder in House 2. And yet, he still could not remember what happened in that home.
2: It was infuriating. How does a family in a back room with the door closed, only women and children...
1: Is that what it was?
2: Yeah, Frank. There wasn't anything there.
1: That night, I pressed Frank one last time. What he said so shocked me. I haven't played the tape for anyone until now.
0: I did not know there was only women and children in that room. Today? Correct.
2: If I may, how can you not know that? That's the hard fact of the case.
0: No one's ever said that.
2: Then in house two, in the back room, there are only women and children.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever heard that, ever.
1: My name is Michael Epstein, and you're listening to my podcast about the longest Most Expensive Criminal Investigation in U.S. Military History, Murder in House 2, Episode 7, The Enigma of Frank Wooderich.
2: I'm going to ask you a slightly personal question, but how do you get mad?
1: (laughs) You know, uh, which is... It seems like I never do. Yeah. Have you ever spent time, quality time, with a mass murderer? I grant you, it's not a question you get asked every day, but still, have you? Because for a good long time, I found myself asking that exact question.
2: I think if somebody didn't know you, Frank, they might say that you have no emotion, just that you don't care, you're detached. Yeah,
0: I I think I I deal with things sort of unusually. Probably not how typical people deal with things. Sometimes I, I tend to think about things just very logically and without emotion. I mean, it's, it's yeah, that's true. I do. Um, like I said, I don't know how I learned that or where I learned it, or, but it's just, I
1: don't know. Frank had been charged with 18 counts of murder. The government, in effect, said Frank was a mass murderer. If convicted, he could have gone to jail for a very long time, possibly the rest of his life the pressure must have been immense. But here's the thing. I had no idea if it was. I couldn't tell you if Frank felt stress or anxiety, if he felt guilt or was overwhelmed with remorse, or if he was angry or sad or anything, because I never saw any emotion from Frank Wooderich.
0: Is it that you're not
2: showing emotion?
0: That there is emotion? Oftentimes, oftentimes it is. Oftentimes it is. Are they there? Yeah, they're there. They're there. I'm just in a position now to where, you know, I just, I feel like I need to show the least amount of emotion as possible as far as for perception reasons or whatever the case may be. I just choose not to do that in front of other people.
1: I want to read you something. Something I thought about every time I was with Frank. It's the very first paragraph from a book called The Journalist and the Murderer by Janet Malcolm. Here's what it says Every journalist who is not too stupid or full of himself to notice what's going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. He's a kind of confidence man, preying on other people's vanity, ignorance, or loneliness gaining their trust and betraying them without remorse. Journalists justify their treachery in various ways according to their temperaments. The more pompous talk about freedom of speech and the public's right to know. The least talented talk about art. The seemliest murmur about making a living. Ouch, not the most flattering portrait of journalism, but I think more accurate than most want to admit. Janet Malcolm was writing about Joe McGinnis and a book he wrote called Fatal Vision. In it, McGinnis told the story of Jeffrey McDonald, who had been accused of a horrible crime, the murder of his 26-year-old pregnant wife and his two young daughters. It was a sensational story, fodder for the day's tabloids. And in the middle of that scandal, McGinnis achieved something of a journalistic coup unfettered access to McDonald and his defense team. Joe McGinnis lived with Jeffrey McDonald. He exercised with him, sat at his defense table in the courtroom, all with the understanding that when McDonald's trial was over, McGinnis would write a book about it. McDonald ended up being found guilty of murder, and he hated McGinnis' book, which savaged him when it came out. Jeffrey McDonald was convinced Joe McGinnis had betrayed him. I think you can see why I kept thinking about the journalist and the murderer every time I was with Frank. See, for a documentary, or in this case, a podcast, to be any good, for it to have any drama, you not only have to gain the trust of your subject, you have to find a way to film them in what is almost certainly the very worst moment of their life. Who does that? Who willingly invades someone's most private moments? and then puts them on display for a living. And I'm not asking that question casually or rhetorically. At some point in my journey, even as I was putting together this podcast, I started to wonder, what am I doing? Is Frank fully aware that whatever I create from all this footage might make him look bad? That he might end up being portrayed as the killer he so emphatically claims he's not? And what about my independence? I filmed Frank and his family for years, six and a half to be exact. That's an awful lot of time to spend with someone and not feel anything, good or bad. And as any honest journalist or documentary filmmaker will tell you, if you grow to like your subject, it colors how you depict them. It has to. And not just how you tell your story, but what story you even tell. But what if you grow to dislike or distrust your subject? What if you've come to think they're lying, that they really are guilty? Are you obligated to tell them what you think, how you feel, even if it means it'll jeopardize your access? I say all this because, as I told you, I came to like Frank. In fact, the more I got to know him, the more impossible it seemed to me that he could gun down a room full of women and children and then lie about it. Then again, maybe I was too concerned about maintaining my access to accept the truth.
2: So is it uh, strange being back home?
0: Yeah, I haven't been home in uh, <clears throat> since 2008. Uh, and i don't i don't come back here very often but i always i always love coming back home
1: a few months before frank's court martial frank made a trip home to visit his parents in connecticut remarkably at that point i knew next to nothing about his childhood
0: what i really like i think about connecticut is just kind of the small town feel and and the trees like there's a lot of forest and woods and i used to love you know playing in the woods and, and whatnot. Um, my parents didn't like it so much, but, you know, I would. Me and my friend Will used to have a fort that we built in the woods that no one knew about except us, and, you know, it was just, it was a lot of fun, And so.
1: So when Frank told me he was coming out east for a visit, I grabbed my camera and drove up to Connecticut to meet him. <clears throat>
0: So right up here is where I uh, used to go to church every single Sunday. Did uh, you
2: know,
0: Sunday school and then as I got older was uh, an altar boy and did that whole bit. I was in their, you know, Christmas pageants every year. Uh, you know, everything baptized, confirmed, first communion.
2: No, I don't think I've ever asked you, but are uh, you feel like you're a religious person at all? You did all that. Um,
0: maybe I'd rather not say. <laughs> no, I, I, I have. Um, I'm very much a, a science person, I think, and so um, I never going to church. You know, I would, I would do the work and and pass the test and all that to to be able to get you know confirmed and and all that. But I just things just didn't really click for me there. I didn't really understand at all. And so I think you know, I kind of feel the same way now. So this is this used to be a diner where my mom used to go, I think, like every morning and get her coffee and hang out there for a couple hours. Oh, okay, here we go. McDonald's, first job. (laughs) Worked there for four months. It was like four years to me. It was miserable. And, you know, my elementary school is right on the other side of this red house. My mom would pick me up when I was in kindergarten and we'd go over to McDonald's and I'd sit in a high chair and drink milk and her and her girlfriend would, you know, chit chat and all that stuff. Then I'd go home and have pea soup for lunch. But there we go,
2: Benjamin Franklin. It's funny how we remember very specific things.
0: Yes. It was, it was the condensed version, and I hated it. That's probably why. I mean, I think it would make me gag every time I hate it.
1: McDonald's and pea soup. Makes you wonder why we remember certain things, even 20, 30 years on, and yet can forget something that just happened. Like whether you murdered an entire family in their home but that was the enigma of Frank Wooderich. He could remember pea soup from when he was five, but not what happened in house two. And I guess at some point, I had to decide whether or not to believe Frank. To decide whether or not he was the kind of person who could stand at the foot of a bed, shoot a bunch of women and children, and then forget or lie about it. In other words, was Frank one kind of person at home and an entirely different person in war.
0: Okay, this is um, Lincoln Middle School here. My my first real kiss was in Lincoln Middle School in the hallway in seventh grade. With who? Heather Carpini was her name. She's married now. I think as Kingsville. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny. I I think I remember. Every single one of my girlfriends first and last names, <laughs> starting from kindergarten. 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 Yes. Yeah. kindergarten. kindergarten. Girlfriends in kindergarten? <laughs> yeah, I, I got in trouble for kissing girls in and, and kindergarten, actually. They, they sent a note home and, and called my parents because I was kissing girls on the playground and stuff.
1: As I shot this, I remember thinking, what the hell is going on? Everything seemed so normal, so all-American. Altar boy at church, a secret fort in the woods, working at the local McDonald's, kissing Heather Carpini in the school hallway. There was nothing in Frank's past that suggested any trauma, anything that would make him hide his emotions or keep him from remembering essential details he needed to remember for his own defense. But then we went looking for the spot in the woods where Frank and his best friend built their fort when they were kids. And out of nowhere, Frank opened up. You spent some of your childhood here?
0: Yeah, I spent uh, 15 years here. I was adopted when I was three. And so lived in Meriden since then until 18.
1: So, yep, spent 15 years. You're adopted? Yes. When you were three, though, so you were in foster care for a little
2: bit, yeah. Um,
0: I went from uh, yep, yep, from, from living with my you know biological mom and that sort of thing, and then went through, I think, two different foster families. Um, and then eventually, my mom and dad adopted me and my sister, so yeah, kind of cool. Do you
1: know your biological mother at all? Or?
0: I've never met her. Um, no, I, I don't. I've seen pictures of her, um, but yeah, that's it. It was it was a closed adoption, I think. So um, at the time, that's what they did.
1: So. Any desire to know your biological mother or, or how old the, were you when you?
0: Um, uh, we me and my sister were assigned a, a social worker, I guess, when we were about to be adopted. And um, I, I was three. My sister was four when we were adopted. So we, we would visit, you know, my mom and dad. Um, for a short time, and then we'd go back and then we'd do that two or three times and eventually we just uh, social worker just kind of said, all right, well, you know, here you go and here's your new new home and mom and dad and you know we obviously we had already met them you know several times before that and and whatnot and so that was that, yeah, three years ago.
1: How old yeah. were you when your mom
0: gave you up for a doctor? The story, as I know it, is that the state made her give us up for whatever reason? Not sure why. You know, I vaguely remember. I guess the the time that it happened. You know, my my biological mom had, uh, you know, kind of told me and my sister, "Hey, you know, we're going out to the store," and you know she. She knew at the time what was, what was about to happen, and then from that point, I just, I never, never, you know, saw her again, so. And, you know, the, whoever came and took us, and we lived in a couple of foster homes, and eventually got adopted. My parents picked us out of a, out of a book, a lineup, I suppose, and, uh, you know, that's, that's how that happened.
1: You following all this? Frank and his sister, were taken from their biological mother by the state. His mother never said goodbye. Instead, she told Frank, who was three at the time, she was going to the store and simply never came back. Frank and his sister were put into several foster care homes before being adopted by his parents. Yeah, I don't, I don't really care about
0: it or, or think about it. Um, it crosses my mind. Oh man, you know, once every several several years but i don't it's certainly not something i I think about or dwell about i mean my mom and dad are my mom and dad and that's just how it was and is i don't know the story i was way too young obviously um and you know for whatever reason it, it happened that way so um i do have another younger i think half brother somewhere out there that i was told about
1: but Obviously, never met or don't know much about that, so. And the final revelation. Frank had a brother who was only an infant when the state took him and Frank from their mother. A brother who Frank never saw again. From what I understand, he was, like,
0: just born or, or, you know, very, very young. And um, so the social worker and the state, whoever, you know, does the... Um, procedures for for adoption didn't feel like it was necessary for him at such a young age to remain with with us.
1: So. so, is there residual anger?
0: No, I don't. I don't have any anger or resentment. I just. I just really don't think about it. I mean, if I thought about it, there would just be too many questions that would never be answered. It's not worth dwelling over thinking about. So.
1: It's not worth dwelling over, not worth thinking about. If I thought about it, there would just be too many questions that would never be answered. I gotta give Frank this. He is consistent. Now, I'm no more a psychiatrist or a therapist than I am a Marine. And there's a real danger in inferring too much from Frank's story. But ask yourself this. Does knowing about Frank's childhood change how you feel about him? about what you think he's capable of doing? Does it change how you feel about the case? Because if I'm completely honest with you, it did for me. I mean, is this the backstory of a mass murderer? This is Michael, and I don't know about you, but sometimes life gets so busy, I don't have the time to cook, but I still want delicious, healthy, gourmet meals. Enter Factor. Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals are always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat the flexitarian and protein-rich meals, and with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. Last night, I had the Moroccan-style almond-crusted salmon, and it was quick and amazing. And if you want more than meals, there are over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks, and smoothies to help you stay fueled and feel good all day. And if you're like me and you're always looking for gourmet options, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, and asparagus. Customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. You can always pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. So what are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com murderhouse50 and use code murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's murderhouse50 at factormeals.com murderhouse50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box, while your subscription is active. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia,
0: Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. My name is Bill Huffman, and I am a former Cleveland News producer, and I am now the host of the podcast Who Killed? I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic and now each week i explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve i have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes so there is a guarantee there'll be something for you who killed is an evergreen podcast killer podcasts and slow burn media production subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows
1: one cold december afternoon neil pocket frank's lawyer called me with some bad news. Frank and his wife Marisol were separating. Neil didn't know all the details, but he was worried about Frank's emotional state. And he asked if I would fly out to Camp Pendleton to help him check in on Frank and his family.
0: Does Madi seem more stressed than she used to be? I mean, is she like quick quicker to anger or less patient? No, she, she seems to be the same you know, woman that I've always known. Um, but you know, at right now, um, we're kind of going through some issues. So, really, yeah, yeah. But you know, that's, I guess, for us to work out. We haven't really talked a whole lot about it more lately. But um, she last night uh, said that she is probably gonna go away for like a month or something, you know? Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about that, Frank. It, you know, it, it's, it's just, I mean, it's a lot of things. Um, I don't know, I'm not gonna get into it really. The one thing that I, that I didn't want to get out of, you know, I guess, telling you guys was this whole feeling that you have that this is because of the case. You know, it goes a lot, you know. Deeper. Deeper and, and, and further than that. You know. Are you thinking that
2: you guys are gonna end up splitting ultimately after separating? I mean, is that is that a possibility? Yeah.
0: Yeah, definitely. You've considered that as a possibility?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The next day I went and talked to Frank's wife, Marisol.
2: So I filed for divorce
0: last week, he's being served today. Words were exchanged. I said some pretty hurtful things. I said maybe what they were saying about him was right. Maybe he wouldn't have, like, think twice about doing what he did in Iraq. And then I I called back and I apologized for saying that. But I was, like, so mad at him. So I regret bringing that into it, yeah. But um, he honestly is not, like, the same person I used to know. Like, really, he's just changed so much.
1: One week before Christmas, Marisol and the girls moved out of the family home, leaving Frank all alone. Two weeks later, Frank was formally arraigned, meaning he was charged in a court of law for the civilian deaths in
2: Haditha.
0: It's the beginning of the end, so. How
1: does that feel?
0: I'm, hmm, part scared, but hopeful. If that makes sense. I don't
1: know. Either way, it's,
0: it's going to be over pretty shortly.
1: That night, as I told you at the beginning of this episode, I went to Frank's now empty home and talked to him about his divorce, the upcoming court-martial, and why he still couldn't remember what happened in House 2.
2: I think there was a time when you said that you were prepared to serve time, maybe when it was further away. When
0: everything first started, kind of came about and you know like right when we got back and you know everything kind of just exploded and, and blew up it was then that i probably felt the worst as far as mentally and and all that as time has gone on i've i've gotten more confident with how certain things are playing out obviously you know there's still a lot of questionable things but um yeah i mean there was definitely a time where i mean i didn't know i mean Shit, it was a time when there was a possibility that I'd be sentenced to death, you know.
2: How'd you cope with that?
0: That's <laughs> a good question. I just, I, I didn't, I try not to think about it as much as possible. Um, <laughs> and that seems to be my answer for a lot of things. But um, it was rough. I mean, you know, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I don't know how I coped with it.
2: What impact do you think it had on your personal life?
0: <sighs> um, Marisol noticed that maybe I started, like, drinking more, and and there were several times where, you know, I'd either, like, cry to her or talk to her about stuff. And, I mean, she was always understanding, you know. I just remember, you know, like, I don't know. She continued to put up with the shit that I put her through.
2: Well, you know, Monty would say to me, periodically, I mean, I'm sure you know, I stood by him. There was a sense of anger. And I think a sense from her that uh, what you went through was pretty dramatic. mm mm-hmm. Court-martial, publicity stuff aside. All right. And that you didn't get the proper counseling, and that you came back broken. In her mind, and that the marriage suffered. She stood by you through what she thought was a dark time. And mm-hmm. um,
0: I don't think it was Iraq that broke me. I guess, as she put it, or you know, made me different. I think it's really just this whole investigation circus going on. I mean, that's the stress that's in my life is the investigation. It's not, you know, me trying to deal with things that happened in Iraq or things that I saw. It isn't, it's just, it's really just the investigation. I'm angry at myself for not being able to defend myself because I don't remember. Everything is just so jumbled up that I cannot remember what happened, And therefore, I cannot, I can't even defend myself. I don't know what the fuck happened.
1: Frank wasn't the only one frustrated by his inability to remember. We all were. I mean, how do you defend a guy whose only defense is, I forgot? And so, with the trial only weeks away, and his family in ruins, Frank's legal team, Neil Haytham and Colby made one last-ditch attempt to jog Frank's memory by sending him and me to Haditha.
2: Hey guys, can we just stop doing everything for one hey, second? We gotta, we gotta move, man. Gotta, I know, I know, I know, but we've got we've got like 15 minutes, and we've got to be gone. I know, but Frank is going through the hey, thing. We gotta, we gotta move. Okay. We don't have much time. Okay. What do
0: you think? I'm trying to remember what happened.
1: In the next episode, Frank finally tells us what happened in house two.
0: He's trying to sugarcoat at stash iron. I know he's you know what happened, okay? So
1: let's cut the bullshit. You sat in my office one day and you, you said you didn't shoot in the back bedroom. Yes, sir. Okay, I know you know what happened. Whatever the reason, you can, I don't give a shit. You wanna keep it to yourself, you suit yourself. You're going down. Everybody's turned on you. Nobody gives a shit about you. If you want more Murder in House 2, join us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, where we'll be posting videos of what you've just heard, as well as photographs and copies of original investigative documents. Just search for Murder in House 2. This is a Crowd Network podcast in association with Buccaneer Media and The Dakota Group. The podcast was produced by Steve Jones and edited by Ed Enniott, with additional editing by Ed Bartesky Jr. and R.A. Fetty. Executive producers for Crowd Network are Mike Carr and Mike Pearls, and for Buccaneer Media, Tony Wood and Richard Tulkhart. Original music by Joel Goodman, with additional tracks from BMG Production Music. Finally, if you'd like another podcast recommendation, check out a crowd network original called The Mentor, where businessman Rick Lewis tries to change the lives of three young people in just 12 weeks. 2020 has been a crappy year for most of us, but Rick and The Mentor podcast are at least trying to end it with some good news. Give it a listen. Just search for The Mentor in your podcasting app. I'm Michael Epstein. Thanks for listening.
2: Crowd Network. A place where you belong. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted taken from you. Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download American Vigilante now.
0: Hello, this is Dr. Grande. but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts.
2: Hi, this is Amy and Vanessa from She Goes By Jane, where we shine light on the stories of missing and unidentified women. On November 7th, we're sharing Nahida's story for the first time in a podcast. And this is a story that I thought I knew, but after reading police reports, became more complicated than I thought. When investigators are called in Nahida Khatib's house, everything looks fine her purse is on the kitchen table, her cup of coffee is on the counter, and her two-year-old niece is in her playpen. The only thing amiss? Nahida is missing. Every week we feature a poem written in honor of the person we're talking about. This week we're joined by one of our favorite actresses. You might know her from Sister Act, or King of the Hill, or The Descendants. But if you're like us, you'll know her from Hocus Pocus. She's the much-beloved Kathy Najimy. Join us, November 7th, to hear Nahida's story.